Greetings in the name of the Triune God. Welcome to the Rural Midwestern Pastor Podcast. My name is David Johnson, and I am blessed to pastor the rural congregation known as Samanach Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us as we explore together how the scriptures declare the good news that God's kingdom has come to us in Jesus. If you'd like more information on our rural congregation, please visit samanachbaptistchurch.org. That's S-O-M-O-N-A-U-K, baptistchurch.org. Thank you for listening. May grace, peace, and everything good be yours in King Jesus. Greetings. Welcome to the online worship gathering for Sunday, June 6th. My name is Pastor David Johnson. I serve as the pastor here at Samanach Baptist Church, uh, SBC family. And if you live local, we'd like to invite you to, if you're comfortable, to attend our in-person worship gatherings. We meet together all in one space in a very, very safe way here at 10 a.m. at 315 East North Street. If you do not have a local congregation, we would love uh, to welcome you uh, into our space where we gather together in the presence of King Jesus, asking that he speak to us and form us according to his word. SBC family, Summer Jam is a week from tomorrow. Pay attention to your text message updates, pay attention to your email, pay attention to Facebook about a variety of ways that, that you can be involved as, as we seek to, as a church family, be a blessing to preschool families and a few years older than that here within our local congregation. This online worship gathering is called to worship by a reading from Psalm 20. The Lord answer you in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your victory, and in the name of our God, set up banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now, I know that the Lord will help his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with mighty victories by his right hand. Some take pride in chariots and some in horses, but our pride is in the name of the Lord our God. They will collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand upright. Give victory to the King, O Lord. Answer us when we call. This is God's word. Let us pray. O God, from whom all good proceeds, grant that by your inspiration we may think those things that are right, and by your merciful guiding may do them. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. King Jesus, you are risen from the dead. You are ascended to the right hand of the Father. And having gathered in your name by the Spirit, you are present with us. So we ask you to grant us our heart's desires, to shape our heart's desires, to fulfill all the plans for us that you have given to us. Help us to resist the temptation to take pride in chariots, to take pride in horses, to take pride in violence, to take pride in military might, but to instead understand that those chariots, those horses will one day collapse and fall. But because our pride is in the name of the Lord our God, we are given the promise of rising from the dead, of standing upright for eternity because you have given victory to the King, O Lord. Because our life is hidden with that King in God, we ask this day for a foretaste of that victory. We pray through the Son and by the Spirit and all of us said together, Amen. Our reading from the Gospels today comes from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 
through 35. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. And the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, He has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Truly I tell you, People will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the gospel of King Jesus. The text that I'd like us to pay attention to together today is found in 1 Samuel chapter 8. In your copy of God's Word, you've got the first five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Then you've got Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then First and Second Samuel. So I don't know, you're about maybe a third of the way into our English Bibles. 1 Samuel chapter 8, and the title of my message this morning is Volleyballs, Eggshells, and a Sermon About Politics. Volleyballs, Eggshells, and a Sermon About Politics. For most of the summer, we're going to be looking at various scenes from the two books we know as 1 and 2 Samuel. And this section of the scriptures describes how Israel moved from more of a tribal nation led by prophets and judges to a monarchy led by kings. And this aspect of their story begins in a very, very important chapter for understanding God and how he works with his people in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So before we begin, let us pray together, please, one more time. Lord Jesus, we've gathered around you. We ask that you would form us into a people who can be regarded by you as your brothers, your sisters, and your mother. That we would be a people who aren't divided against each other, but that we would be a people who do the will of God as it is revealed in Jesus. We pray through the Son and by the Spirit and all of us said together, Amen. Loneliness can lead to unexpected gifts. Five years ago, loneliness <clears throat> led me to connect with who you probably know as Pastor Matthew, the pastor of uh, Sandwich Church of the Nazarene, Matthew Jones. One of the things that I've learned in many, many years of ministry is oftentimes pastors can go through bouts of loneliness. And oftentimes, especially in our kind of church tradition, pastors can feel like they're all alone. They're doing this thing by themselves, and then there's this weird kind of social space that pastors occupy. And sometimes having good, connected relationships are difficult to come by, 
And I had encountered Matthew in a meeting of a community of pastors, and I, I just sensed that, hey, I think this may be a life-giving relationship. So we planned a lunch together. And then that connection with Matthew at that lunch, he asked me to consider coming to a Bible study that he was a part of with another group of pastors. That connection with Matthew led me to a connection with Wayne, with Steve, with Chris, with Denise, and with Ted. Now, at the outset to me, each of these connections didn't seem to have much to offer. And more specifically, these connections led me to think about this volleyball. I assume that some of you perhaps were thinking about, is that a volleyball behind Pastor David there on that communion table? Isn't that almost kind of sacrilegious? I mean, you got a candle, you got an icon, and a volleyball. That seems kind of strange. Now, this volleyball, do you see the name on that? This Wilson volleyball reminds me of what I think is one of the most important characters in all of cinematic history, Wilson the Volleyball. Do you know what Wilson the Volleyball, what movie he plays in? That movie with Tom Hanks called Castaway. The character that Tom Hanks plays is like an executive with FedEx. And just after he had gotten engaged near the holidays, he flies on a FedEx plane that encounters a storm that crashes, and he is the lone survivor, and he finds himself by himself on an island. And there is an extended scene after scene after scene with, with very little dialogue, with very little like lines that the actor Tom Hanks has, but yet he does an unbelievable job acting. And one of the things that happens at his island is many of the packages that had been on that FedEx plane that crashed started to wash up on the sandy beach there at the island where he was stranded. We've got ice skates. We've got other things that come that he can make use of. And then one thing comes, it's a Wilson volleyball. And he thinks, huh, interesting. Well, then after an injury where his hand was bloodied and he touched the volleyball, all of a sudden that, that bloody handprint looked like a face. And then a relationship, a connection was born. And Tom Hanks' character began to have this friendship with Wilson the volleyball. He named him Wilson, so much so that near the end of the film, things happen where he loses Wilson. And when he finds that he is no longer going to be able to speak with his friend, to spend time with his friend, there are these iconic screams that Tom Hanks gives, Wilson! Wilson! And you understand, one, how as human beings we are made for human connection. And in many ways, Wilson probably contributed to the character's survival, at least emotionally, psychologically. But then you understand that oftentimes, connection is really what we need the most. My connection with Matthew, that led to a connection with Wayne, Steve, Chris, Denise, and Ted, this connection brought with it unexpected friendships, people to whom I could talk when I was lonely. And this past Tuesday, for the first time in well over a year, we were able to meet together physically in one space to share lunch together and to do Bible study together. And I had this moment at the beginning of that time together when Denise, a local pastor, prayed for our meal, prayed for our Bible study together, and was just overwhelmed, so much so that my eyes welled up with tears at how good it was to be together with those people. Now, here's why I tell you that story. Once I started to develop friendships with these brothers and sisters in ministry, I started to look for ways. How can I spend more time with them. 
Well, attend that Bible study. Join that Bible study. That Bible study is what is called a lectionary text study. Here's what the lectionary is. It's this collection of texts that the church traces all the way back to the time of Jesus as the texts that preachers and pastors will use within the preaching ministry of their local congregation. So those texts are connected to what we know as the Christian calendar. The Christian calendar tells us when Easter is, when Good Friday is, when Pentecost is, when Advent is, when Christ the King Sunday is. And essentially all that is, is a Christian understanding of what we know as the Jewish worship calendar. If you go back to the Old Testament, there are all kinds of instructions about how the people of God, the Israelites, were told by God to order time, to order their worship life together, to order their festivals in such a way that the way they worship together was inextricably linked, one, to creation. They were supposed to keep Sabbath. That's a tradition that goes all the way back to creation. But then their keeping of time and their worship life together as the people of God was also connected not only to God's actions of creation, but also his redemptive acts that, that basically Passover was this time where everything began again and everything linked back to the collective memory that Israel had of what God had done for them in the Exodus, defeating their enemies, delivering them from slavery, and giving them the promised land. Read through the first five books, especially Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There's all of these instructions about in this month connected to the sun, the moon, all of this stuff, you shall order your life together. Now that's Old Covenant. So here's what I want us to understand. Following an, a, a specific calendar is something that God's people have always done. What's more, Jesus himself experienced this. This is not some new fad that, that, that my generation of pastors thinks this is the new thing that, that, that the church needs. No, this is actually the old thing that the church never should have left behind. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus first sermon followed a quote-unquote lectionary. In Luke 4, 16 and 17, Jesus on Sabbath goes to synagogue. He is keeping time according to the Jewish calendar. He goes, Luke says, to synagogue on Sabbath as was his custom. And he stood up to read. And he didn't say, this is the text that I think you should listen to. No, he stood up to read and somebody handed him the scroll of Isaiah. In other words, there was within Jesus' worship life a lectionary. In other words, this specific day requires this specific reading. So just like the Jewish people kept time according to creation and redemption, the New Testament church, the early church, modified the Jewish worship calendar and connected it to Jesus because Jesus is the fulfillment of creation. Jesus is the fulfillment of redemption. Beloved, when the body of Christ follows the Christian calendar, and by Christian calendar, I don't just mean Easter and Christmas, but I mean things like Pentecost. I mean things like Epiphany, where the church celebrates how Christ is manifested to the nations, where the church celebrates things like Lent, this preparation for Holy Week that, that has Old Testament roots in it, what we are doing is we are tethering ourselves, not to fads, not to the whims and wishes and, and, and popular things of our culture, but we are, we are above all of that. We are connected to a story and a movement that has its roots all the way back to the time of Moses. Joan Chittister in a book called The Liturgical Year, The Spiraling Adventure of the Spiritual Life, she says this, The liturgical year is an adventure in bringing the Christian life to fullness, 
in bringing the heart to alertness, in bringing the soul to focus. The liturgical year does not concern itself with the questions of how to make a living. It concerns itself with the questions of how to make a life. The liturgical year is the year that sets out to attune the life of the Christian to the life of Jesus. Specifically, the liturgical year will take you through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, depending on what year you're in, and then other times through the Gospel of John, always drawing the body of Christ back to Jesus. It proposes, the liturgical year, year after year, to immerse us over and over again into the sense and substance of the Christian life until eventually we become what we say we are, followers of Jesus all the way to the heart of God. The purpose of the liturgical year is to bring to life in us and around us, little by little, one layer of insight after another until we grow to full stature in the spiritual life. Intent on living a spiritual life that matters rather than a spiritual fad that fascinates or a spiritual program that anesthetizes the soul to everything but the self. We find out in the liturgical year what makes life matter by following Jesus through every element of it. The liturgical year is the process of coming back year after year to what we already know on, on one level but are newly surprised by again and again, by walking the way of the life of Jesus, by moving into the experience of Jesus. We discover the meaning of our own experiences, the undercurrent of our own emotions, the struggle it takes to go on walking the way. This is what the liturgical year does for us, is it connects us to Jesus and the Jewish roots that help us understand him, but then it brings us back again and again and again to the one who has the words of eternal life, Jesus himself. Now, the Christian calendar, the lectionary, the liturgical year on this particular Sunday wants us to read 1 Samuel 8. So I, this week, open up my Bible to 1 Samuel 8 and begin digging and begin digging, and digging some more, and digging some more. And I'm just like, what does this text have to say to us? And then oftentimes what happens is a light goes on, and I think, okay, why this text on this day? Jesus, I believe, wants us to read 1 Samuel 8 in light of the Christian calendar. Where are we in the Christian calendar? We just finished Eastertide, 50 days celebrating the risen Christ. And on the first Sunday after Easter, we celebrate Ascension, which has been the goal of Jesus' whole ministry, to become King of heaven and earth, to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And then after Ascension, we celebrate Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit to make the church. And then last week, we spent a week wrestling with the doctrine and the implications of Trinity. And then now we're in what the Christian calendar calls this very, very creatively ordinary time. We are now God's people who believe Jesus has risen from the dead, who believe Jesus has, has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And through Jesus, the Father has poured the Spirit upon us, making the church. And then now we as the church have to live faithfully in light of all that we have just learned. So, 1 Samuel 8 is where the church wants us to be. Now, before we look at 1 Samuel 8, a couple of contextual things. Ultimately, God never wanted Israel to have an earthly king. Judges chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, oftentimes after a great battle, the judge would then be elevated politically. They say to him, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us out of the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That ultimately Gideon in his wisdom understood that 
that was not what was best for God's people. Now, we drop into 1 Samuel 8, and we must understand something very critical. 1 Samuel 7 comes before 1 Samuel 8. Samuel, something I learned this week, was also referred to as a judge. Not just a prophet, but a judge. And as a judge, things are going remarkably well for Samuel. Look in chapter 7, verse 7. When the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. The people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us and pray that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty voice that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. So Israel is at this time where they have enemies that are coming at them, and through a ministry like Samuel, who is not only prophet, but is also judge, and in this text has almost a priestly ministry, God is doing for God's people what God's people need. There is this, this interchange of God's people cry, God's people answer, and he does what he promised he would do. Yet, in chapter 8, we are faced with a temptation. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not follow in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So, the leaders that are set to follow Samuel, which is something that has happened. Eli's sons did the same thing, and God brought Samuel. But yet, what do we learn from history? Sadly, no. So these people are faced with this idea of there's these unjust rulers, rulers who aren't keeping Torah. It seems as though 1 Samuel 8, the narrator wants us to think of a couple of passages in Torah that talked about how leaders in Israel should give themselves to justice. This is in Exodus 23, starting in verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in their lawsuits. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and those in the right. For I will not acquit the guilty. You shall take no bribe. For a bribe blinds the officials and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. So there's this idea of corrupt government taking bribes and then rendering judgment based upon the bribe that you received. So there is this temptation of unjust rulers. So it's almost as if the powers of this age are, are, are holding this fruit Look at how unjust these rulers can be. And, and then here's the temptation that, that Israel is facing. Verses 4 to 9. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen. Listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, Listen to their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So they're faced with the world is unjust. Things aren't going the way we think they should. Leaders aren't taking care of the poor. They're instead taking care of the wealthy. Remind anyone 
of current situations here within our context. But God's people are faced with the temptation. Unjust rulers are before them, and the temptation is you might want a king you can see. And that's the sin. The sin in this passage is demanding a visible king. Why? Why do they want the king? They want the king because they look at the other nations and they want to be like them. They want out of envy what the other nations have. But Israel, beloved, is called to be for the nations by being different from the nations. Back to Torah, Moses tells God's people, it was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that there's something distinct from the nations about Israel. They're small, they're weak, and they're looking at the nations and they want to be bigger, they want to be powerful, they want to be great. So they ask for a king to make them great. And Yahweh is willing to be rejected. Just like we see as revealed in Jesus, he is willing to be rejected. Walter Brueggemann, who has a wonderful commentary on First and Second Samuel, says this, the whole history of Israel is one of forsaking and going after other gods. The request for a king is one more step in that continuing performance of mistrust. The issue of monarchy in Yahweh's speech is perceived as his people's unwillingness to have as the source and rule of life. Beloved, when we demand, when we think what we must have is a visible king, when we think that having the right king is what the church needs, we have sold our soul. We have committed the same sin that Israel commits. So God warns them through Samuel, listen to this vivid description. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. So he's going to take the safe spot and he's going to send your boys off to war to die for him and his agenda. Verse 12, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He's going to enslave you just like Pharaoh enslaved you. You want to be like the other nations. Remember what it was like in Egypt? Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain. He's going to raise your taxes and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord, because you've rejected him, will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, we are determined to have a king over us so that we also may be like other nations. Beloved, kings you can see can't be trusted. Beloved, don't put your allegiance in a king you can see. So how can we now read 1 Samuel 8 in light of the Christian calendar? Two truths. First, the church's identity as an embassy was settled 
at Ascension and Pentecost. Are you familiar with this concept of an embassy? An embassy is a little slice of a different country in a foreign land. So if you are in a foreign country, a country with whom the United States has an agreement that we can have an embassy there, as a citizen of the United States, when you find yourself in trouble, you can flee to the embassy, and that embassy is a little slice of the United States in that embassy. Beloved, that's what the church is. The church described in Philippians 3 is this embassy of heaven. Beloved, the church of Jesus Christ at Ascension and Pentecost, he became king of heaven and earth at his ascension. And then he gave us the very life of heaven into the church so that the church could be this small slice of not the land in which it is physically situated, but the land of heaven on earth. That is our identity. Our king is not visible to us, but he is present with us by means of the spirit. Just like through the ministry of Samuel as judge, prophet, and priest, God was present spiritually doing things for Israel and making them victorious. So now the church through the ministry of word, sacrament, through our presence together as God's people, through the love by the Spirit that we share with each other, we are now this space where God does for us what he was doing for Israel in 1 Samuel 7 and what Israel said we no longer want you to do in 1 Samuel 8. So the first truth, the church's identity as an embassy was settled forever at Ascension and Pentecost. Century, secondly, what Israel has rejected, the church has now become. We are one people who are ruled by a king who is now present to us from heaven by the Spirit. We are one people who, when faced by injustice, we flee the temptation to demand a king. Beloved, that's what the church when it's being faithful, is called to do. To not demand a physical king, we can see. To not demand to have our guy in the White House. To be a people who say, what we need is to be more dependent upon really the only king who matters. An author that I've quoted many times at length before is a man named Stanley Hauerwas. Stanley Hauerwas in his memoir describes a situation after church one Sunday night in a hot East Texas summer Sunday evening. He's sitting on the porch with his mom. And at church that previous night, he dedicated his life to the Lord and to ministry. And he sat on the porch talking about that with his mom. And his mom described how when she gave birth to him, much like Hannah, she gave him back to God. She dedicated him back to the Lord and how him dedicating his life to God and to ministry was such a holy moment for her. This was such a significant thing for, for his mom and for Stanley that he named his, his, his memoir near the end of his life. Hannah's child, even though his mom's name wasn't Hannah, even though his name was Stanley, not Samuel, just like Hannah had dedicated Samuel back to the Lord, so Stanley's mother had dedicated him to the Lord. This is what he says in the introduction to his memoir. Some might think, however, given the way things have worked out, that I have played a Samuel-like role and challenged the religious establishment of the day. It is true that I have tried with no more success than Samuel to warn Christians that having a king is not the best idea in the world, at least if you think a king can make you safe. Beloved, much like Stanley Hauerwas, I would like to challenge our congregation. What expectations should you have for a church that is faithful to Jesus' authority by means of the Spirit. First, you should expect 
church, to be an embassy of the only king and the only city that really matters. You should expect church to be an embassy, not for a candidate, not for a president, not for anyone running for political office, not for political activism. You and I should expect church to be an embassy for the only king and the only city that matter. Just like Hebrews says, in this world we have no abiding city, but with the people of faith in chapter 11, we look for a city whose builder and maker is God. Ultimately, our identity as a congregation is not American, it is Christian. We are an embassy of heaven on earth, and that's what you should expect from church. Church should remind you ultimately that your identity is not American, that ultimately your identity is hidden with the King, Jesus, in God. That's what you and I should expect church to be. And secondly, just like Samuel criticized all of Israel's kings, just like Samuel criticized all of basically any earthly king, any earthly president. You could read that indictment in verses 10 to 18 and describe that to any president the United States has ever had. They have charged us taxes. They have sent our, our boys to war. They have taken the best for them. So you should expect the church to remind you of how other kings fall short. Part of our witness is to take Jesus and his kingdom and witness to the world what that king and his kingdom really is like. Beloved, the reason uh, my sermon is called Volleyballs, Eggshells, and Getting Political is I just want to confess to you that, that, that sometimes I feel like I have to walk on eggshells. And beloved, I, I've never literally done that but I imagine that's pretty uncomfortable. And oftentimes, especially in this politically divided and, and, and hostile time, I wanna stop having to walk on eggshells. I wanna be able to, without apology, tell you the truth of scripture. Beloved, ultimately, if we as a church are going to be faithful to our witness, we can't prioritize. We can't favor one earthly king. More specifically, if we are going to be faithful, we need to be speaking to the kings we are most tempted to trust. That ultimately, one of the reasons, one of the ways we can be faithful is if there is a particular earthly king that you are tempted to place your hope in, it is my responsibility to faithfully show you, one, that king is not Jesus. Two, that king falls short of Jesus. Three, that king is somebody you should not place your hope and your trust in. Beloved, if we were in Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, President Obama's home church, that church needs to be told by its pastor how President Obama and President Biden and, and, and all people on the left politically are not to be trusted and shown how these administrations, these kings fall short. So if we're in Trinity, United Church of Christ in Chicago, that church needs to be criticizing the left because everybody in that church is tempted to place their hope in that king. But on the other hand, if we were in First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, that church, if anything's true about what you see in their videos online, they're most tempted to trust Donald Trump. They're most tempted to trust Ted Cruz. They're most tempted to trust people on the right side of the aisle. Beloved, it seems as though that is the temptation that, that we in our context face. To place our hope in the Republican Party. To place our hope in, in the policies and personalities of Donald Trump. Beloved, let me just be very clear. Both churches, Trinity United Church of Christ, in the hope they're placing in the left political ideology, and churches like First Baptist Church of Dallas, whose pastor campaigned 
for Donald Trump. Both are going after other gods. This is not easy for me to say, but I want to criticize both political sides. The Obama and Biden administrations are unjust toward the unborn. They do not match up to what King Jesus would say. Just like 1 Samuel talks about how kings kill the innocent, that is what those who advocate for abortion in this nation are guilty of. Beloved, I also think the Trump administration was unjust toward the immigrant. Beloved, we as the body of Christ are called not to be beholden to a political ideology, but to be beholden to Jesus. Ultimately, as Michael Spiegel says, the question should never be, is this action left or right? Is this action liberal or conservative, socialist or capitalist? The question should be, does this action love my neighbor? Does this action look out for their interests more than my own? Does this action manifest the fruit of the Spirit? Beloved, Jesus has equal criticism for President Obama and for Donald Trump. Jesus, in Matthew 25, says to you and to me that when at the end of time all nations are gathered, the thing all nations are going to be judged for is how they treated the vulnerable. And right now in our current political setting, both political sides of the aisle are unjust towards the unborn. So we are called to not be the middle of the road. We're called to be above that divide and to offer to the world the true ethic of the true king who says his kingdom cares for the hungry. His kingdom cares for the thirsty. His kingdom cares for the immigrant. His kingdom cares for the naked. His kingdom cares for the sick. His kingdom cares for the prisoner. So what should we as the body of Christ care about? We should care about the just treatment of prisoners. We should care about the just treatment of the sick. We should care about the just treatment of, of those who can't make a living wage, who don't have the food they need, who don't have the resources we need. We should also care about the just treatment of the unborn, that ultimately the mother's life and the health care she needs is just as important as the baby who we want to be born in her womb. Beloved, sadly, in this divide over pro-life, pro-choice, one side seems to only care about the unborn. The other side seems to only care about the mother. The church is called to care for both. Beloved, the only king who really matters is Jesus. The only kingdom the only nation that really matters is the kingdom of heaven. And I'm reminded of this every time I bury anyone. At their funeral, at their graveside, I'm reminded ultimately that who's in the White House doesn't really matter. That ultimately the true throne, the true seat of power is not in the Oval Office in a White House on Pennsylvania Avenue. The true seat of power is at the right hand of God, which is why at your graveside, we will not call upon Joe Biden. We will not call upon Nancy Pelosi. We will not call upon Donald Trump or any, or George W. Bush or any of the presidents that you think were wise and, and good for our nation. Ultimately, that is not where our focus goes when we place your body into the ground. Where do we go in that moment? Psalm 20. The Lord answer you in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
Some take pride in chariots and some in horses, but our pride is in the name of the Lord our God. They will collapse and fall, but we shall rise and stand upright. Give victory to the King, O Lord. Answer us when we call. Beloved, may the spirit of Pentecost form our pride to be in exclusively and only the only king who really matters. Let us pray. Almighty and merciful God, in your goodness, keep us. Keep us, we pray, from all things that may hurt us, that we, being ready both in mind and body, may accomplish with free hearts those things which belong to your purpose. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Secure in your love, we confess our sins with humility and joy. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you as the one who defeated death. We praise you as our ascended King, and we thank you for the gift of the Spirit. And by that Spirit, we now ask that you would not allow us to be divided against each other. That ultimately, Lord Jesus, you chose on one end of the political spectrum, Simon the Zealot and Levi the tax collector, and you brought them together at one table and you made them one. We ask you to make us one. And would that oneness be rooted in our allegiance to the only king and the only city that matters. God of grace and glory, you fling the stars into the heavens, you see every sparrow fall. Deepen our trust in the mystery of your power shining through Christ Jesus, that we may live your love for the world. In the name of the one who taught us, we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this time of online worship together. Again, I invite you to join us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. Until then, I invite you to receive this final benediction. And now may the God of all hope fill us with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound in hope. And all of us said together, amen. May grace and peace and everything good be yours in King Jesus.